Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James Bijan. Brian Motes is recording, and he'll be editing and making sure everything is ready to release to the public. Uh, we are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we are slogging through a section that deals with the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. I say slogging, and I don't mean that as if it were a bad experience. I mean that as it's a, it's a slow experience. And it's a slow experience because these sections of Deuteronomy are so rich and interesting and so many angles and possibilities arise as we discuss these things. So uh, we are toward the end of chapter 22, and we're going to be dealing with the very last verses of chapter 22 and then into the early part of chapter 23 today. Uh, and this is part of what uh, we've described as the seventh word section of Deuteronomy, a long section of Deuteronomy, as I've said repeatedly, is organized according to the 10 words. The 10 words are repeated in Deuteronomy 5, and then the chapters that follow are organized by the 10 words. So you have a section on each of each one of them. And we're in the seventh word section of Deuteronomy right now. And um, that section began with a series of symbolic laws about forbidden mixtures that uh, started in chapter 22, verse 9, mixing two kinds of seed in a vineyard mixing animals as you plow an ox and a donkey together, mixing material, wool, and linen together. And then uh, verse 12 kind of fits with that, the tassels on the corners of the wings of the garment uh, with which you cover themselves. And we find out from Numbers 15 that those are color, that has a colored thread in it, and that indicates that there's a mixture of threads within the tassels. So we covered that section and following sections in the last episode of the podcast. And those are some of those are pretty clearly dealing with adultery, which is the focal point, sexual immorality, the focal point of the seventh commandment. We have a series of a series of uh, examples of sexual infidelity, sexual sins, different categories of women and men lying with different categories, different kinds of women, and the different consequences of those illicit sexual encounters. That's been a chunk of Deuteronomy 22. Uh, as we go on in this section, though the association between the laws in Deuteronomy and the seventh word becomes a little more opaque. Uh, as we go into chapter 23, there's um, the first, first verse has to do with uh, eunuchs, men who have had their sexual organs removed. They're not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. But that uh, opens up a section at the beginning of chapter 23 that doesn't focus on damage to sexual organs, but rather focuses on who's permitted into the assembly of the Lord. That's the focus of the rule about uh, those who are emasculated or castrated, they're not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And that, but then there are other categories of people that are not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And those other people are not people who are have damaged um, has damaged bodies. That's not the that's not the issue. So it seems to devi deviate at that point from strict concern with the seventh word. And then the section ends with a series of rules that have to do with Israel in the war camp. That begins in verse nine, when you go out as a camp against your enemies and then ends in verse 14. And that, again, uh, some of those have some kind of connection with uh, sexual matters, but uh, the, the connection with adultery per se becomes more becomes thinner and becomes harder to see, and we have to think more broadly about what the seventh command, commandment covers. And I think a, cu a couple of angles on that, just to get us started, a couple of angles about why these sections, why these rules and laws are, co are contained in the seventh word section. Somebody has his sexual organs cut off, that makes sense. But then somebody who's born illegitimately and then Ammonites and Moabites 
and then Egyptians and Edomites, those, those are the other ones who are being considered as members of the assembly. Although there's not an explicit reference to sexuality in those things, obviously you have people who are descended through a series of fathers and sons, fathers and daughters that constitute a people. Uh, so what what makes a people a people through the generations is a generation after generation of sexual productivity and sexual reproduction. And so it seems at least partly that these laws are, con- are included in the seventh word because the, broadly speaking, the seventh word has to do with purity, not only purity of sexual uh, sexuality and sexual life, but with purity of descent and purity of the seed. Uh, that's the issue that's coming up at the beginning of chapter 23. So the seventh word doesn't just deal with illicit sexual intercourse, but deals with sexual organs. It deals with the body. Uh, and then it also deals with the consequences of sex uh, and and the the peoples that are formed by uh, generations of uh, of reproduction. And then when we get to the war camp, they have again. There's a there's some uh, some of these rules that seem to be that more are more obviously under the seventh word. The first rule seems to have to do with a nocturnal emission. That's the way it's that's the way it's uh, translated in my New American Standard Bible. A seminal emission. If a man is in the war camp and he has a seminal emission at night then he's unclean and he has to go outside the camp until the next evening. And then he has to wash himself and be returned to the camp. So that's a purity rule, but it's a purity rule that has to do with what's coming out of uh, the man's sexual organ, uh, a a nocturnal emission. Uh, The next rule has to do not with what comes out of the sexual organ, but with what comes out of what is eliminated as excrement. So uh, you have to have a, a latrine outside the camp. You can't have a latrine inside the camp of the Lord. You have to have a latrine outside and I think that one of the ways to see this is that there's the Bible's not Victorian and prissy about human bodies. You can you know read uh, read Leviticus 15 uh, and the details it gives you about sexual emissions, women's monthly periods, other bleeds from a woman's sexual organs, men who have emissions from their sexual organs. The Bible doesn't doesn't hold back from regulating those things. The law deals with that in uh, kind of straightforward ways. And I think what we have here is kind of a, a shift from uh, the law governing uh, what comes out through the sexual organs and uh, the uh, law that governs what comes out through the through the anus, through excretion, uh, waste products that come out of the body. Uh, and the one of the connections between the two is the fact that they're both coming out of coming out from the interior of the body and moving out. They're coming out from adjacent parts of the body. So I think that that's the that uh, bodily fact is part of what it, what I think uh, is in the background. The other thing that I've thought of is the possible connection between the these different environments or these different groups, the assembly of the Lord at the beginning of chapter 23 and the war camp in the next section of chapter 23. Both of them, some of the languages we'll see has have kind of bridal significance. The assembly of the Lord is the assembly of Israel, uh, who is the bride of the Lord. The war camp and the way that that uh, uh, uncleanness of the war camp is described uh, has certain associations with it's a bridal setting it's a holy setting it's a place that the lord enters into uh and is in the midst of uh and uh, so there's perhaps behind this is kind of a symbolic association between these two these two uh, social groupings the people assembling and the people assembling as a war camp and the lord in the midst of them and that kind of a, that as a marital image so perhaps the seventh word is behind this in a more symbolic way and so that would mean that then we can extend the seventh word beyond again merely sexual encounters between individual human beings 
to corporate events and corporate entities that have kind of a bridal character. So those are just some sketching out some uh, overall parameters for thinking about these things that we can we can we can discuss those whether whether what I've suggested is a plausible overall take on it. But uh, we did want to uh, finish up what we were saying about chapter twenty two. We didn't quite finish chapter twenty two. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, James, did you have something you wanted to raise there at the end of chapter 22 as a starting point? Yeah, I did. And I hope it will be a useful thing to discuss just in the broader context of dealing with the law. So if I recall verses 28 and 29, we agreed, and this isn't a universal view, but I find it very likely, we agreed that what's being described here is a man who forces himself on an unmarried woman or unbetrothed woman, and he then is um, required in, in some way, I guess, to pay the father of the woman 50 shekels of silver and then becomes um, her husband um, and is not permitted to divorce her. And I guess the question arises, what happens if this law starts to be misused? So... Perhaps a man has tried to arrange a marriage with a young woman. It hasn't worked for whatever reason. And so he forces himself upon her and then um, the law says, right, they should now be married. And this is regularly raised as, as uh, as an issue with that line of interpretation. And I'd be keen just to pursue that a little bit. I mean, I was trying to think this over and it seems to me that Always within the law, there was this kind of principle that things, laws weren't to become self-defeating. So a law to, I don't know, um, uh, observe the Sabbath wasn't meant to prevent priests doing their work or, um, uh, or, or circumcision or other things. And it, it would kind of seem perverse if a law designed to protect the dignity of unmarried women started becoming started being used like in the exact opposite way and it just feels to me that kind of the whole system of israel it feels like there would always have been and and should have been sufficient kind of discernment in the judges who would make rulings that they could take steps to make sure that that didn't happen and prescribe penalties not explicitly listed here in order to kind of just be sensible about things. And obviously I want to preserve a balance between kind of going with what the text does say um, and and just playing fast and loose with it. But yeah, I've been intrigued to know what you, um, what you think about all that. So James, are you suggesting something like this? So there's a man who has an interest in a woman, uh, and he's he's shown that interest over years, and she's just rebuffed him. Or, in the context of Israel, uh, the families just can't agree for uh, to them uh, for the marriage for for some reason. Well, he decides then to take matters in his own hands and forces her, which, in his mind, ensures that um, she will become his wife. I think that's is that what you're thinking yes it is that's the scenario i'm thinking yeah okay so it it would seem to me that these laws have to be adjudicated so priests and judges 
who are looking into this and if they call witnesses or if the one of the the uh, parents of the or the family of the woman then it describes how this man has been pursuing her but it's uh there's been a no agreement between her and the man or between the two families that should be enough to uh, uh for the judges to recognize that this this doesn't apply uh there's something else going on here that's what i would think and is that the kind of thing you're thinking yes it is i mean i'm conscious that obviously built into the law is this concept of hard cases which have to be referred up or possibly even to moses in the original um context and i'm just thinking that the law surely was meant to be flexible enough to allow sensible decisions like that to be made to say well, look this doesn't apply in this case yeah yeah i agree with that too i think that's uh you know there's some cases where that's more or less explicit that uh, you know that a, a final decision is made by somebody and uh the father for example might have the right of refusing a potential son-in-law even though that might be the rule in some cases but J jim jordan made a case years ago for talking about the death penalties within the mosaic law and he was responding to kind of the hard line theonomist idea that the death penalties are required in every case. And so you have, I don't know, 12 or 15 different crimes that require the death penalty. And he put together different lines of evidence within scripture to suggest that the death penalty is a, a maximum penalty for certain kinds of crimes. It's a seems to be a required penalty for deliberate murder. But in other cases, there's there's extenuating circumstances. There's judgment by the by the judges. Yeah, and I don't th I don't think we should import kind of a uh, a later notion of of legal reasoning into the law. I think you you inevitably have people making decisions. That's true in every system. But um, you know the idea that we're we're a nation of laws and not men that doesn't seem to me to be a biblical portrait. You have laws that have to be applied by men. You can't escape that. And I think one of the reasons why Moses insists on having uh, wise, spirit-filled elders is for precisely that reason, because they will have to make wise decisions. Uh, that's that's something that's especially the case. I think it's obvious, more obvious when you get to the monarchy, where I think the, the kind of the supreme example of Solomon's judgment is something that the law doesn't straightforwardly answer. And he has to make a decision. He has to use a kind of ruse in order to expose the truth about a complicated situation. But I think that's already implicit in the law. That kind of that kind of wisdom is already encouraged by the law. Hmm. One thing I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on is the way in which we impose perhaps modern categories upon some of the sins that are treated in the Old Testament. So, for instance, when we talk about adultery, we tend to think of adultery as something that integral to it, there is consent. So it's an affair or it's a fling or it's something between two consenting parties. And consent is very a very weighty concept within our sexual ethics, something that can override other things within modern society. So if it's a consensual relationship, um, other considerations that would make it illicit can be really downplayed. And that can be in um some societies even stronger there are um there's great tolerance for adultery in some societies given that it's a consensual relationship so-called now i'm wondering whether in scripture there's more of a sense of adultery as 
taking another man's wife without the sense of without consent being integral to the definition and on the other hand things like um the man who meets the virgin and takes her um that is um whether or not there is consent a sort of inherently violent act um there are non-consenting parties presumed such as the um family members who have not given her and so I'm wondering how we understand modern categories relative to the scriptural categories particularly as consent is involved because that's often something that's playing a lot into our consideration of these but i'm wondering how we negotiate the relationship between such categories i mean consent is a concept here isn't it alistair in that you've got distinction between a woman who cries out and a woman who doesn't or at least is is thought not to have cried out i, I know i know you're not saying consent is irrelevant in the bible but i'm, I'm just saying it it seeks to make a distinction um doesn't it yes that is something that's important at, uh, in various cases but i'm thinking particularly of verses 28 and 29 um the virgin who's seized i mean is she seized from herself as it were um taken non-consensually in that way or is she seized from her family um and she might be um not unwilling but there's something um violent in the way that this man has gone about it without cons consulting with her family or i'm wondering how we understand these categories because there are more parties involved in the relationship of marriage there's the um arrangements with the family for instance and then there are also other situations where a sin has a more um a broader sense um than we might think for instance in adultery which would include non-consensual relations um where another man's wife is taken where it's defined very much relative to the man from which the woman is taken rather than a consensual relationship between two parties um outside of wedlock i'll just throw a wrench into the discussion not uh, insisting on this but uh, uh, james mentioned this already that uh, verse 28 uh, is a disputed verse, and whether that implies force or not, uh, it doesn't use the same verb that's used in the previous case, uh, where the man forces and lies with her in verse twenty-five, and that case is is uh, treated as being similar to murder. Verse twenty-six says that's not the same verb, and it's not the same. It's not the same, but it's also not just take, which is a man takes a wife. That's the that's the normal language of legitimate taking. It is something stronger than that. So just to to raise that point about whether whether we're in fact talking about something that's forcible in verse 28. I think uh, the, the point I was going to make was just to reiterate something I said in the last episode, James, and that is that consent, consent plays a role in these cases, but consent runs in the opposite direction. Uh, that is, if the woman consents to this illicit relationship, then she's she's also culpable. So her lack of consent is what what uh, frees her from, you can't say, well, I, I agreed to do it, therefore, uh, everyone, every, there. It's, therefore, it's okay. It's the opposite in the two cases that are given earlier. And I think Ballester's point is really important that consent is only the master category in a situation where no one else is making a decision uh, about sexual encounters or about marriage relationships. It's where the the two individual parties are making a decision and they're consenting. And then be, then it becomes the master category. 
But when you're talking about a situation as you have here and throughout the Bible, where marriage is never just two individuals, two individuals don't exist. You have people who are part, as I we all talk, talked about this last time too, people are part of networks of relationships and those networks of relationships are implicated both in their uh, illicit sexual relations and in their licit ones. I mean, you, you can't you can't detach them from that. So I think it's, yeah, you're right, Alistair, that in that kind of social setting, then obviously consent is going to have a, a different role and other people's consent than the two parties are going to play into the decision that's made. Okay, so given all these qualifications and clarifications, my question is for elders and pastors who are reading this, and remember, one of the reasons we thought we'd go through all this in some detail, the law, is because it's good training for elders who have to adjudicate cases within their churches and within their community. So the question I have is, what what part of this applies? What You know, I, I think our discussion should be very helpful to elders because uh, we're talking about um, how this needs to be adjudicated by men. It's, it's not just... Um, it's not just here to be woodenly applied. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. I think that's all really good. But so, so the question an elder is going to have is, how does this apply to us? What's in the words of the Westminster Confession, you know, what's the general equity of this? What there's parts of this that seem to be uh, applicable, but then other parts that seem, uh, well, for one, uh, I can hear a modern person saying this, this shows no concern for the woman's desire the woman's will she just she appears to be a captive a prisoner now to this man and and no divorce is going to be allowed so what part of this for any elders or pastors are listening to this and have maybe a some sort of similar situation in the church what part of this applies today and how does it apply well i can tell you what i've done with it uh, in pastoral situations not not saying that this is this is the applicable part of it, but it's particularly on these verses 28 and 29 that we've been discussing, when I've discovered a young man who has slept with a young woman, the, the thing I've insisted on is confessing it to her de- her father, her parents, and uh, not letting it just be a secret between the two of them. I mean, obviously, it's been confessed to me as a pastor, so I'm, it's not public, but it's already been confessed. But I've ins- I've insisted that they can't leave that just just between the, two, the 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 young man and the young woman. The thing that I haven't insisted on, but I encourage them to consider prayerfully is you've, you've entered into a relationship, a sexual relationship with this woman. Uh, you have become in some loose sense, at least one flesh without the formalities of a marriage. And the Old Testament requirement, given, you know, acknowledging extenuating circumstances like those that James has mentioned, the Old Testament requirement is that you follow through. You take responsibility for your action and you marry this woman. So I've applied it somewhat loosely, but I have pointed people to this passage when they're in this situation. I think one of the significant um, lessons from a text like this is also that the whole attitude that we have concerning sexual relations that is very much focused upon individuals and consent is fundamentally mistaken. There are other parties involved. There are um, commitments that um, you make in having a sexual relationship with someone that need to be followed through on. There are um, 
other parties who have a legitimate interest in that relationship. And so to act as if you can proceed merely on the basis of individual consent with just two parties is mistaken. Um, you need to recognize the other parties who have an interest and a concern, and there needs to be a sense also of the the import of a sexual relationship, even outside of um, marriage and non-consensual um, relationship. And even in that setting, there is a an implicit commitment that has been made. Um, you can think of the ways that Paul treats this in 1 Corinthians 6, um, and the relationship between um, two people, even in an a relationship with a harlot, the two have in some sense become one flesh. And so there is this recognition of the objective force of the other parties involved. And that alone, I think, has immense implications in unraveling so much of our contemporary sexual ethics and mores. Yeah, that's helpful. Also, the fact that the, the young man has to pay reparations to the father um 50 shekels of silver and it seems like a good amount i'm not sure what the equivalent is maybe james knows um but what if he can't pay is, is this mm -hmm. is this designed to ensure that the man has the wherewithal to support this woman before the father gives her to him uh as his wife um uh, but in, at any rate, I'm not sure the answer to that question, but I think Alistair's point about uh, how this involves more than just these two individuals, but there's a, there's, there are families involved. There's, um, I think that's a, an excellent point. And the reparations given to the father at least show that there's, the sin has not just begin, been against the woman, but also against the family um, and right. against the father. Right. And it's that's the kind of principle I have in mind when I'm I've advised a confession. And I haven't I haven't uh, insisted on compensation, but I I've advised confession because it's because it's not just the two the the man and the woman involved. I guess the a, an interesting question about what happens if he can't pay. I mean, I guess the his future father-in-law could just forgive the debt. That's that's an option always. But there may be some kind of quasi bond servant relation that's established that uh, requires him to work off the debt over time if you if you combine this with other other rules about indebtedness there there might be that might be something that uh, that might be a way to handle it within the within the torah yeah or it may be that again if if people are actually adjudicating this it may be that the father says this man is a he's a worthless he's uh he he's not worthy to be my my uh, son-in-law he can't pay uh in which and as people look at this they'd say well he can't pay because he doesn't work um and so it seems to me that the father would have the right here to deny the man right uh his his wife it's, at least that's possible is it the case that if um the man committed this act the father could say um I'm not allowing this man to be my son-in-law, and he would still be expected to pay the reparations. 
or is it only um, in the case where he's going to go through with the marriage? It seems to me that the reparations would also be expected in that situation where, in some sense, he's paying something like the bride price for another man whose wife he has taken. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, the, it seems to me the logic behind the compensation is something like the trespass offering, which, you know, an intrusion on holy space. So if you take something that belongs to Yahweh, something that's holy, then you have to repay what you've taken. And then you had to have, add a 20% penalty on top of that. Uh, so there's, uh, the, and then make an offering. That's the trespass offering. But it involves compensation because you've intruded on God's holy things. You have kind of an analogous holy space of the man's, the father's household. Uh, one of the vessels of his house has been taken, and so you have to you have to offer compensation for that. So, uh, yeah, I think I think you're probably right, Alistair, because the it's not just a test of his ability to support a future wife, but it's also compensation for that wrong that he's done to the family, and it also, as you already said, Alistair, I'm just reiterating, it's also covering for if the if he denies this man, he, he doesn't allow this man to marry his daughter, then his daughter is. It looks like damaged goods, and then you have some kind of uh, some kind of financial support that could be offered along with marriage. I think one of the, one of the interesting things in all this is the intrusion <laughs> intrusion of uh, shekels of silver into these romantic relationships, and that's this isn't the only time where you have this very very kind of practical concern. It's uh, the Exodus passage where a man can't uh, dismiss his wife; he has to provide for her both uh, materially and sexually. He, he's not allowed to dismiss her. I can't remember the particular circumstances of that law. Uh, but there's this practical emphasis on, uh, you know, Jane Austen had read her Deuteronomy. She knew that marriage was all about money. And uh, having uh, that practical concern with uh, support for a wife, the protections that a wife must have, particularly in, in this ancient, ancient setting where she doesn't have many options outside of marriage, and that takes, you know, very concrete, practical financial form. Uh, that's, I think that's another dimension of how this, sit, the whole situation is different from our, our, current, our current sexual economy. It isn't quite the same situation, but there is a financial transaction in Genesis 20 when Sarah, Sarah is returned to Abraham by Abimelech. Um, he gives sheep, oxen, male servants, and female servants, and then... In verse um, 16, to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you have indicated. Yeah, another, I think another intrusion on there, it's not intrusion on the father's holy space, but on the husband's holy space. Apparently, 50 shekels of silver is like a couple hundred days wages. This is a pretty expensive compensation. The other, another thing is, I just just thought of this is this was the price of the threshing floor of Aruna in Second uh, Samuel twenty four. It's fifty shekels of silver, which of course is something of the trysting place between Yahweh and uh, his people, his bride. Yeah, I wanted to throw another kind of consideration into the works, which is that. In this latter case we've been discussing, 28 and 29, obviously there is a situation to deal with between the 
men and women involved. But the particular decision made clearly goes beyond that. I mean, any law and its application is going to incentivize or disincentivize certain behaviors. And so there's more than just, I mean, I know we've said this already in terms of the family, but wider looking at the society, there's more than just the man and the woman at stake. I mean, there's no two ways about it. We have a massive problem in modern society with men who want to sleep around, often have multiple children with multiple women and do little, if anything, um, with regard to the rearing of, of those children. And that's obviously, you know, th this law is designed to kind of disincentivize certain behaviors. And then coming back to Jeff's point, which is part of the reason why I wanted to raise this whole issue anyway, of elders' decision-making in the context of a church, that same issue then raises its head, doesn't it? How any particular issue is dealt with in the context of a church is going to incentivize or disincentivize similar behavior in the congregation of, of that church. And it just strikes me that that's a, another whole layer of complexity to incorporate into this. One thing to keep in mind as well is that the sort of violation that's occurring is not merely against the woman, not merely against her family, but also against offspring, as becomes clearer in the verses that follow. Those children that are born outside of wedlock are um, limited in their the civil rights that they can enjoy, civil standing that they can enjoy within Israelite society, and the whole structure of the family begins to fray. And so the concern that um, partly this setting things right is not merely a sort of judgment upon what the man has done. It's ensuring that going forward, things can be set on a proper footing and that relationship can occur in a way that brings on, that honours the parents, that ensures that any offspring of the union have proper standing and that ensures that that woman is not left without security. And so all of these concerns involve other parties within the society um, beyond, or a number of those concerns involve parties beyond the man and the woman. Um, and it's important when we think about these relationships, we're so fixated upon the two consenting adult parties, we don't even think about the status of the children that arise from them. But that's very much a concern in the verses that follow. Yeah, a great point. Uh, I wanted to go back to James's comment too. Um, yeah, that's a really good point about the incentives that are built in. But then the you have the issue within churches of uh, how do you incentivize something? You have to have some kind of public standard or public confession or you know some kind of publicity about situations that arise. And maybe it's sufficient for pastors to teach on the law and say, you know, the way I would apply this is if this situation comes up and two of you in this congregation sleep together, then uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be insisting that it becomes public. I'm going to be in, uh, urging you to toward marriage. You could have it at that level where that's it's, it's uh, expressed. Um, the other thing is that you have situations like this that are actually made public to the congregation, and in discipline cases, then you wouldn't you would have that. I'm not sure that that's a uh, a necessary or a wise thing to do in every single case. I think there may be cases where it's best handled among the family, the parties involved, 
uh, that's a question I'm curious to uh, get insight from Jeff about whether that's that's something that should be publicized in a church because you know the more public it is, the more disincentive, uh, more disincentivized repeat behavior is. Yeah, excellent point. I think lots of times pastors make this mistake of thinking that um, something like this needs to be made public uh, and don't think about the consequences. Consequences being sometimes the shame that comes from two, let's say a, a couple that confess, repent, they recognize their sin, they've been forgiven. Is it necessary then to shame them publicly? Um, if there is no repentance, then that's another whole nother matter. Then that becomes a matter of formal and then possibly public discipline. But there are lots of there are lots of infractions, sins like this um, that don't need to be made public. And I mean, we were talking earlier about this situation coming before the priests and the elders, but it wouldn't have to. <laughs> if the man, if the young man pays the 50 shekels or agrees to work it off in some ways, then it wouldn't necessarily need to become public. Um, I would think only if there's some uh, objection by the father or the families or something that it would come before the judges. Otherwise, this could happen privately, uh, and no one except the two families would need to know about it. I, I, I think this is a, um, you know, for for pastors and elders out there, this is something they need to think about, not with regard to these kinds of sins, but every kind of infraction. Just because, even and it could be something very serious, but if it's not public, it doesn't necessarily need to be public. So then, your question, Peter, is how does that then disincentivize similar kinds of things? Well, I think you can talk about these issues. <laughs> it's it's something. This is something of a dilemma for a pastor who's been at a church for thirty years, like me. So I've seen. And I've dealt with lots of different issues similar to this. And lots of them I can't talk about. I can't bring them up as illustrations in sermons because people would figure out who it is or I'd have to explain who it is. So what often happens is when I go out of town and do a conference or speak at another church, that's when <laughs> that's when I'm able to, to uh, illustrate various principles or laws or problems with specific examples of things that have happened in church without any names. So I think within the church community, these kinds of things can be talked about, but sometimes they ought not to be. It's not wise to talk about them necessarily in your own congregation. James, thanks for raising, uh, raising all those questions. Uh, we, we, we aspired to get uh, to move on to chapter 23, but I'm glad you raised those because that was a really good discussion. But let's do move on to the very last verse. We're not going to get to chapter 23 just yet. Uh, let's do the very last verse of chapter 22, uh, which is another case. This is an incest case. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he shall not uncover his father's wing. As I mentioned when we uh, when we looked at this last time, there's a, the repetition of the word ring, wing, rather, from verse 12. Uh, you... Uh, uh, make tassels for the four wings of your garment to cover yourself. That's in verse 12. And then you have this inclusion on uh, verse 30 that closes out this section of the of the passage 
which now refers to the father's wing. The idea is, I mean, the probably the best known example of what's what's involved here is uh, in Ruth three, where Ruth sneaks up on Boaz at night and asks Boaz to spread the wing of his garment over her. It's a marital image. It covers both the man and the woman with the same garment. It's a one flesh kind of image. They're wearing the same clothing, as it were. They're covered by the same sheets. Uh, they're sharing. They're sharing a life and sharing flesh together. Uh, and uh, the, the covering with the wing of the garment. So uncovering uh, the wing and exposing nakedness. You don't have that phrase here, but you do have it in the uh, parallel passages in, in Leviticus 18. Pulling back the wing of the garment is exposing nakedness, and that's illicit. That's an illicit uh, sexual act. Um, I think it's still you're you're working in the in the realm of kind of analogous holy spaces. Um, Sexual encounters are not holy in a strict sense. In fact, uh, sexual encounters in the Old Testament produced uncleanness for both parties. Uh, but there's a kind of there's a kind of analogous uh, tent that's formed by the skirt of the by the uh, wing of the man that he stretches over the woman, uh, and then intruding on that is an, an assault on that. It's a trespass on holy space, the holy space of the marriage, the quasi holy space of the marriage, I should say. Uh, and it's also a, a, an assault on the on the uh, the man because it's his it's his tent it's his wing that he's covered, so it's a kind of assault on the father. It's a it's a a sort of parricide or attempted parricide, not just an assault on your father's wife, a sexual encounter, but uh, it's a it's an assault on your father's authority in your father's space. Question of clarification as to exactly what's in mind here. I mean, it's it simply says here a man shall not take his father's wife um, in this way. Now, that carries the death penalty, doesn't it, in um, Leviticus 20, is it? Yes. Um, right. So is this merely repeating that, or does this – because there in um, Leviticus, it's in the context of adultery and various other things. Might this cover – the situation after the father has died um is it sensible to kind of carve this out as a separate case like that yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought of that i was thinking it more as um a brief uh reiteration leviticus 18 has uh, rules of consanguinity and incest along with other sexual rules and then chapter 20 of leviticus uh, gives much the same list of sexual infractions, but then includes penalties for them. So cross-generational incest, that is incest between a son and his mother, a son and his, a man and his aunt, that kind of cross-generational incest, a man and his daughter-in-law, that's, uh, that merits the death penalty. When you have incest within a generation, like brother-sister incest, that's, that's prohibited, but when it happens, it's not treated with the same severity. So I've, I've taken this as just a repetition, a brief uh, allusion and repetition of that. But that's interesting, uh, James, that it, it could be a, sp a specific case, unstated that that's what's talking about. But it does say father's wife. It doesn't talk about mother. But that is a case that Leviticus covers, taking your, taking your father's wife, whether it's your mother or another wife of your father. James, are you thinking then this would be an attempt to uh, acquire the inheritance to get what uh, your father has, something like that? 
possibly i hadn't really developed it i just wanted to sort of punt it as an idea and see what people made of it an obvious example would be not so much to get the inheritance as a sort of internal coup in the family you can think of reuben taking bilha um in that situation as in the case of um the um, absalom taking his father's wives and concubines there's an attempt to usurp the father's place within the family this is a common practice also right with um with wannabe kings to violate the people who want to have authority they they take the wives as for themselves uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking i don't know if this applies but uh in um when nathan comes to david to confront him about what he's done with bathsheba um he talks to him and says that he that the lord gave him his master's house and his master's wives into his arms um and and you know if all this was too little and then he goes on to describe other things good i'm wondering if if uh what's going on here is also since you're taking the wing of his robe and the robe is his authority it's it's a it's a it's a way to as peter mentioned already it's a way to grab authority it's a way to um take the power for yourself so to speak um and it's it, this seems to be a practice in the ancient world where uh you if you take the wives of the emperor then you're claiming some sort of authority and power uh over him and and uh putting him in his place that kind of thing the language here is also the language of um genesis 9 with um ham and um noah yeah i think uh, yeah i think that that's uh, uncovering nakedness i think is explicitly included in in genesis 9 as it is in leviticus but it is yeah it's, it's analogous language james you had something well I, I was going to say i mean one thing that's got me thinking along these lines is that we're going to go on one day in the near future to chapter 23 i assume where the issue of kind of these forbidden unions is raised and immediately next to them is mention of an Ammonite or Moabite entering the assembly. And so kind of raised in the context is incestuous relations of some kind, which I guess makes, I'm, I'm saying that because of um, the Ammonite and Moabite and the scene with Lot and his daughters. But clearly a man taking his father's wife, I guess that necessarily rules out the idea of, um, what's the term for it? Yibum, they, they call it in, um, I can't remember the English term, leveret, leveret marriages. Um, in the case of a living ancestor, that union obviously would be Ill illegitimate, um, but it, it becomes a duty once an ancestor has died. That That's clearly not the case even if a father has died, um, a man never needs to raise up um, children for his father because he is one of his father's children. So I, I guess I'm wondering if if it could be raised for that reason, just contextually. Yeah, interesting. So there's there's not yeah there's not leverage um, responsibilities when it comes to uh, when it comes to parents, right? Interesting. Right by definition, yeah. Right. I want to highlight a couple other things from uh, verse 30, and uh, we will 
in in the very near future, as James said, uh, get to chapter twenty three, but uh, not quite yet. This image of cover, covering the bride with the with the wing is um, it's in Ruth three, but I think the probably the the uh, most common usage is in context where Yahweh is extending the wing of his garment over Israel. You find that in uh, the allegory of um, Ezekiel thirty six. Ezekiel 16, rather, for example, uh, other places where the Lord extends his wing over Israel. And I think that that then uh, generates associations with uh, the Lord as the the winged uh, rescuer of Israel from, from Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 19, uh, Deuteronomy 32 uses the same image, but one in this case is not uh, we. Uh, he, he took us on eagle's wings out of Egypt, but rather uh, Yahweh is kind of a protective bird hovering over the young and and covering the young Israel in the wilderness with his wings. I think that links up with uh, uh, the uh, the hovering spirit of of Genesis one. So you have that those associations of Yahweh. You have you have the uh, the wings of Yahweh come up uh, a lot in the Psalms. That puts me in mind that uh, you know you have the actual wings of the. Cherubim, the wings of Yahweh's chariot that are inside the inside the most holy place, but uh, the temple or the tabernacle might itself be considered the Lord's wing stretched out over Israel, stretched out over the priests, and so going into the tabernacle is coming under the shadow of the wings of the Lord, uh, appealing to uh, the divine husband for uh, protection, uh, appealing to the divine husband for rescue. That's what happens under the wings. And then one last one last thing that has intrigued me for a while is the uh, the connection between the verb uncover, which is galah here, uncover nakedness, as I've said in Leviticus. Here it's uncovered the father's wing. It's exposure. Well, that's the same verb that's used uh, in the prophets to describe exile. Exile involves an uncovering. It's an exposure of nakedness. So uh, it's the uh, exposure of the nakedness of the land. So the land is uh, ripe for invasion from. Uh, from Israel's enemies. Sometimes this, that's described in sexual terms, that the Lord is going to expose the nakedness of Israel uh, as, as a woman to, the, to, her, uh, to her invaders uh, and leave them vulnerable to, to rape and invasion. I think ultimately what's, what's being removed there is the Lord's own covering. Um, exile involves the Lord drawing back the covering of his wings uh, which leaves Israel again vulnerable and uh, uh, and uh, to be victimized by by invaders. So I think that all those cluster of things that uh, link up this this passage and then the custom of the wing, the winged garment stretched out over the bride, with Israel, uh, and the Lord's wings stretched out over Israel. And if we take if we just verse thirty in particular, if Yahweh is uh, the husband who stretches his wing over his bride. Than any assault on the bride is an assault on Yahweh's uh, on Yahweh's authority, an attempt to get under the cover of Yahweh, and an intrusion on His holy space. Kind of related comment on the language. I'm almost certain that when Joseph's um, uh, brothers go to Egypt, he accuses accuses them of spying and says something like, "You've come to see the the nakedness of of the land." Yes. And so- there's obviously inbuilt into that the the idea of uh, acquiring knowledge of things that you shouldn't have knowledge of, 
I guess that that seems implicit in the in the language used. Yeah, which obviously would apply to uh, the sexual application of that imagery, because sexuality, sexual encounter, is described as a form of knowing. I mean, to simplify what you're saying, so someone who who seduces Israel is basically attacking Yahweh, the husband, right. and to apply that to today, you seduce or attack the church, the, you're attacking the bride of Christ, the husband. And that's that's why it's serious, is it's not just a community, it's not just a you know a voluntary association of religious people. It's a it's the Lord's bride and you seduce her, attack her, and you're violating, you're challenging his authority. Something like that? Yeah, yeah. And that may actually uh lead us into chapter 23, which we'll cover in the next episode, where the treatment of Israel as they come out of Egypt is the standard of whether these other peoples are included within the assembly of the Lord or not. Ah, good point. And and they're excluded if they mistreat the bride. Yeah. Something that comes to mind is when Hezekiah, is it Hezekiah who shows the Babylonians all the riches within the um sanctuary and so on yes, and yes. he seems particularly to be accused there of yeah showing things to foreigners that they shouldn't have seen and and that that seems somehow to tie into what you're saying in that i mean that will ultimately lead to exile but all that seems to be wrapped together in some way thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.